River Radio of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. Looking at the Women's Prize for Fiction shortlist. And exploring geography as a topic in books. Good morning there. I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages with Julian and myself. Good morning, Julian. Good morning, Heather. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And you? Uh, very, very well indeed. Good, yes. good, good. Were you listening to me on Deborah's programme? I was, yes, <laughs> yes, with all the Heather's handy hints. <laughs> That's what we like to call them. <laughs> well, every week at Turning Pages, we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics, because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. As always, we've got a fun-filled hour designed for you this week. Uh, we've got the shortlisted titles for the Women's Prize for Fiction, which have just been released, and we'll be looking at the shortlist in detail. Indeed we will, and we're also going to be travelling the world this morning and looking at geography in books. And don't forget, we'll be got, we've got the Cook and Festival, which River Radio are heavily involved with, and that's starting on May the 6th, so we'll be chatting about our favourite uh, sessions that we'll be attending then. Indeed, we will. And to start the show, we've been scouring, as uh, usual, the papers to spot any interesting news items for you. So let's start with a quick roundup of what the book stories we found for you this week. Do you know, I found an absolutely fantastic one, which is a new idea in coffee shops which have just been introduced in Japan. Now, I'm sure many of us have popped down to a coffee shop with our computers to do some work. Certainly, I'm guilty of doing that. And authors, of course, are no exception. J.K. Rowling famously wrote Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in Nicholson's Cafe in Edinburgh. In Japan, someone has taken this idea and taken it one step further. So the cafe's mission is exclusively for those who are writing. So that doesn't have to be authors, it could be journalists or what have you. And what they claim is that they're offering concentration along with your flat white or whatever it is that you're drinking. So rule number one of the cafe is that on arrival, you state the nature of your writing project, the number of words you plan to write and the deadline. So once an hour or so, the proprietor will just walk around the shop and ask how you're getting on and provide you with a little bit of support and encouragement. And I'm sure that'll prevent you from wasting time on your phone. But the final killer blow of the cafe, however, which makes this a really interesting concept, is that you aren't able to leave until you've completed your task. Now, I'm thinking that is a fabulous concept that many a student or author would benefit. What do you think? 
I guess I think that would be very good. It's sort of tutored coffee shops is an excellent idea. Absolutely. And, and actually, it, yeah. it's quite an extension because in Japan, I mean, uh, when I when I travelled there, uh, cafes, it, it's it's not cheap to go and have a coffee. Right. So very much like the Viennese coffees, you, 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 you are allowed to linger. So it's a very good concept that you can linger, but there there's a purpose and you must complete this task. I yes. think it's a great idea. Yes. Very, very good idea. Now, the, I, I found a piece that the, uh, the BBC um, adapted Sally Rooney's novel, Normal People, and it was one of the biggest successes of the corporation's modern history. Within a week of its release, would you believe it was streamed 21.8 million times? Wow. I know, fantastic. But by the end of the year, it had been streamed 62.7 million times, which is an incredible number. Now, uh, her first book, Conversations with Francis, has just finished post-production. And who wouldn't have jumped uh, into that opportunity, I must admit. Mm. Now, um, uh, uh, Rooney was uh, very much involved in Normal People, but was a bit too busy finishing off a third novel, Beautiful World, Where Are You?, which is published um, last year to actually be involved in, in the production, but and I'm sure it'll be fantastic anyway. But if you want to see what all the fuss is about um, in conversation with friends, um, is, is, is on BBC Three, which has just come back on air, an iPlayer, and is going to be screened from May 15th. Oh, better still, why don't you read the book itself? The book is Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney, and it's published by Faber and Faber. So scuttle off to your local bookshop and pick up a copy now. Yes, actually, because that's her first book, I think people might have started with Normal People, because that was yes. the one that was obviously, I can't believe that um, those numbers, 62.7 million mm. times. Mm. It's phenomenal. Anyway, uh, yes, yeah, so going back to her first book might be a really good uh, suggestion. Mm. Um, I was reminded over the weekend about how easy it is to dismiss books as being not your thing, when in reality, they fit your reading preference perfectly. And for some reason, you've got this sort of blank blankness about it and or, um, or a prejudice or a prejudice absolutely yes definitely a prejudice <laughs> so I have never read Elizabeth Jane Howard um and I sort of know her as the wife of Kingsley Amos which is so wrong of me how mm. dare I see this amazing novelist as just a wife of a wife. somebody who happens <laughs> to be famous so her series of books the Cazalet Chronicles I have sort of dismissed in my mind as sort of like being a, a family saga, not you know, not the sort of thing I'd necessarily be interested in. It's as it traces the sort of like the fortunes of an upper middle class family. And her other novels always seem to have a romance covers, you know, the sort of like the the, the very pale pastely colours mm. with a woman or a rose or a glass of wine or something like that. And um, do you remember when bookshops used to have a small section dedicated specifically for women's writers? Yeah, and it used to be at the uh, at the very back of the shop. Yes, that's yeah. true. And <laughs> yeah. and I always think, why why do they have to have a special? Why aren't we all just writers? You know, yeah. they don't have to. You you don't only read women's writers, or you don't only no. read men's <clears throat> writers. You just read good books, don't you? Yes. You and do. anyway, her books were always in the women's writers section, and I sort of characterise them as such very wrongly. So. The novel, someone was recommending to me the other day, the novels are not only intriguing as social history, but are brilliant providing a feminine focus on events between the wars. So incest starts with a fatherly kiss. Mothers confide how they hate getting pregnant. Men folk 
cope silently with the horrors of the war. It's all going on and the castlets are far from cosy. And Howard's writing is absolutely superb. It's worthy of any bookshelf. And I feel I now have a new favourite author. Well, that's really good. But interesting, though, um, because this is links to what we were talking about last week with, with, with Mike on the subject of jacket design. Oh, yes. So those jackets obviously were designed for market, but put you off yes. when you saw them because you thought that, they're, well, this is this sort of sloppy Argus-Argus stuff and you weren't interested. And Absolutely, so, yeah. So that's where, well, probably maybe it worked for, for some people who, who wanted them, but, but it had the opposite effect with you, which is interesting. Yeah. I think book yeah. cover design is a very complicated it, it is, yes, and but critical. Yeah. Now I found this this lovely little snippet, which I think is is great. Um, uh, all primary school pupils are to be given a book as a keepsake um, for the Platinum Jubilee. Um, so that's going to be really nice. And quotes uh, will uh, there'll be quotes from the Queen, um, along with details of lives of significant Commonwealth figures, such as Nelson Mandela, for example. And they're going to feature in the book, and the, and they're going to be distributed um, throughout schools in England from mid-May. Now, the book is aimed at celebrating and showcasing the Queen's incredible living legacy, and and, and it will allow children to trace the highlights of the royal reign through a story featuring a young girl called Isabella. And so she's going to guide um, the, the 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 reader through through the book. Uh, the book will also be available uh, to uh, to buy, and that's going to be coming out on the twenty third of June, and it's going to be published by DK Books. Right. I, I was interested that you said that they were going to be available to for English school children. Yes. And um, I think if you're in Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland, you have to sort of order them in specifically so not necessarily everybody will get them right yes i I think it's a bit of a shame well it is really yes but i think it's probably again um devolved governments deciding they're going to flex their muscles and do things differently so yeah but anyway good things for the english uh english uh, primary school children absolutely any any book that you can own is a is a good story yeah absolutely it is i've got a little bit of music for you oh i know we don't normally do this, but when the Now you'll have guessed from that that was Roxy music. And Brian Ferry, the frontman of Roxy Music, has published his lyrics as a book this week. Mm. Following hot on the heels of the success of Paul McCartney's book, which is out last November. Because, of course, that hit the bestseller list and became a Sunday Times book of the year and was shortlisted for quite a number of awards. So, obviously, Brian Ferry is sort of uh, thought... There's a good opportunity. So he's uh, he's got his book out to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Roxy Music's iconic first album. I cannot believe it's 50 years ago. I give um, up, yeah. Brian Ferry's work as a singer and songwriter is certainly solid with uh, tracks such as Avalon, which you heard um, at the beginning. Uh, together with Virginia Plain, Do the Strand, Love is the Drug. I won't sing any of them. But Thank goodness. 
<laughs> but the book covers 300 pages. It features wow. 149 songs. So I think that's an average of three songs a year that he was uh, writing and releasing. Wow. Uh, so Roxy Music haven't realized, um, released any new music since 1982. Mm. But they will be reuniting to tour in celebration of the 50th anniversary of their debut. So this book will certainly sit handsomely on the bookshelf of any Roxy fan. Mm, I think it will. Now, uh, as a link here, uh, I've got a, a, a really interesting story, which I think will get our listeners to start looking along their bookshelves, um, because a recent report in the uh, the Daily Telegraph suggests that there's been a significant increase uh, in interest um, for buyers of rare and first edition books. Now, auction houses are putting this down to collectors having quite a bit of spare money, which has built up during lockdown when they were not able to go away on holidays or go out to restaurants and eat. And now that's been uh, converted into uh, money to buy uh, on uh, to buy rare books, uh, which they're passionate about. Um, this has resulted in intense interest at auctions, uh, which is driving up prices. Um, for example, um, the demand uh, having soared so much, recently an advanced copy of Harry Potter's Philosopher's Stone, and to listen to an advance is a book that is actually not um, ready for for um, sale. Um, an advanced copy of uh, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, which was the first book, sold for £30,000. Wow. Mm-hmm. And a first edition of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, which you would think probably would be Commander Hanson Price anyway, would normally sell between twenty and thirty thousand pounds. Recently sold, in fact, in March for seventy thousand um, pounds. But it's not just um, the uh, rare books that are selling um, for thousands. Uh, Forum Auctions um, sold a theatre program from nine, from a nineteen sixty seven amateur dramatic production of The Hobbit, which was signed by um, J.R.R. Tolkien, and that went for £6,000. Wow, and how lovely Tolkien went along to an amateur yes. production. Yeah, yeah. I went, to, I went to an amateur production of Guards, Guards by Terry Pratchett up in Abingdon um, a few years, uh, quite a number of years ago. Um, a lovely little theatre there. And um, Harry, um, Terry Pratchett goes along to the first performance, or used to go along to the first performance of um, his um, his plays, and he was there. And I just thought that was absolutely brilliant because it's such a small theatre, mm. so it was probably only about fifty people go anyway. And he'd taken yeah. the time and effort. Uh, it was just. Really That's really nice. But I think we'll probably won't actually tell our listeners of the embarrassing episode when we went to see separate tables. Absolutely not. That is definitely not a story that we will tell. And shame, shame on you. We'll have to mer- mention separate tables. Um, Terry Rattigan. Is it Terry Rattigan? Um, uh, Rattigan. Rattigan, yes, anyway. Rattigan. Yes. Yeah, don't know what his first name is. It's great today. Terrence. Yeah. yeah. Terence, yes. <laughs> I was being very familiar tell. with him there. Yeah. Good old tell. Right. Knocked out a good story. No mind. And I'm just finally as a as sort of like an add-on story, which is only sort of between ourselves. I mm-hmm. want to say happy birthday, Neil, my beloved brother-in-law. 
And uh, I was trying to think what book I could buy him. And I couldn't decide on a book, but I have decided on a book title. And it's mm-hmm. The Agony and the Ecstasy, or more likely just The Agony, as he's a, Le- as he's a Leeds United fan. Sorry, oh. Neil. Happy birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> you are listening to Turning Pages on River Radio with Heather and Julian. Thank you for listening. Coming up, we'll be looking at geography in the world of books. But first, we have a selection of books shortlisted for the Woman's Prize for Fiction this year. So since 1996, the Women's Prize for Fiction has been celebrated for the most outstanding novel from the best female writer. And each year, the shortlist provides the most eclectic and exciting selections to tempt you. And this year is no exception. So we've got the uh, the shortlist here for you. The winner will be announced on the 15th of June. So plenty of time to pick up a few of the shortlisted titles to read and cast your own judgment on the titles. I always like doing that, actually, before a yes. prize. Just yes, to see yes, whether your mind is... Attuned with the the judges. Exactly. Now, um, here we have the shortlist of titles uh, and coming up, but in no particular order of of merit as such. And the first off the block is Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. Now, uh, this novel follows the journey of a female pilot, Marion Graves, who in uh, 1950 attempted to fly the Great Circle around the Earth, flying um, over both North and South Poles. Uh, The parallel story um, is of a disgraced filmmaker, Hadley Baxter, and the subject of her latest project, Aviatrix Marion Graves, intertwine deftly in this ambitious novel that brings hilarity and depth in equal measure. Now, Shipstead's own adventurous spirit shines through as um, as the two female heroines pawn scorn on the traditional tropes through their remarkable lives. And whilst their fates are evident early on in their voyages, they're illuminating and surprising at every turn. And it was chosen by the Telegraph as one of the best fiction picks of 1921, which is no mean feat. And it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize last year. And the reviewer, one reviewer of the Telegraph, went on to say of uh, A Great Circle, it is luminous, masterful, glides seamlessly through the 20th century, immersing the reader. Tremendously well written. Great. There seems to be a number of aviatrix books um, around at the moment, I I seem to feel. Uh-huh. This is obviously yeah. a, a trend. Mm. Well, maybe that's, maybe that's what um, the, the nice lady that um, got into um, uh, sent a message to Deborah at 77. Maybe she should take oh, up flying. Yes, that's a very good idea. Mm. I know we took my mother-in-law on a flight when she was 90. Oh, and British Air, Air, British Airlines were so lovely. They couldn't believe such a little old lady had travelled. <laughs> and they were giving her champagne and escorted tours round the uh, the cockpit. It was really fantastic. Oh, Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, BA, for that. <laughs> right, so I've got the next book. And that is Meg Mason, Sorrow and Bliss. So teetering on the precipice of turning 40, and we were talking about uh, growing into middle age earlier on with Deborah, Martha found herself without everything she once had. 
And this is not just a novel that navigates the midlife crossroads, but through its use of wit and style as a vehicle, it presents a joyous and fresh voice that will leave us all wanting to share the book with everyone you love. And I think that's a great recommendation of a book is you just want to share it because it's so fantastic. Exactly. So Julia Myerson from The Observer, um, she says about it, it's inspired storytelling, a devastating and sharply funny love story it's martha's voice herself her woeful deadpan narration always teetering between the comic the tragic and the downright unlikable and it makes this novel sing and i think Mm -hmm. that sounds great fun it does it does uh the next up is ruth azeki's um book the book of form and emptiness and it's it's actually quite a a a strange book and it's, it's quite a brilliant in its own way um, that it's both a tale of poverty, loss and heartbreak. Uh, it's an adventure in literary style and a searing critique of modern uh, materialism. Now, one year after the death of his beloved musician father, 13-year-old Benny O begins to hear voices. Now, the voices um, belong to things in his house. For example, a sneaker or a broken Christmas ornament or, interesting, a piece of wilted lettuce. <laughs> Exactly. Um, Although um, Benny doesn't understand what these things are saying, he can sense their emotional tone. Um, Some are pleasant, a gentle hum or a coo, but others are are snide and angry and full of pain. And when his mother develops a hoarding problem, the voices grow more clamorous. Now, the book of form and emptiness blends um, an unforget these unforgettable characters, um, and uh, they. It's a very riveting plot, and it's a a vibrant engagement with everything from jazz to climate change and our attachment to material possessions. And it is actually a classic Ruth Ozeki, told um, uh, in a bold, humane and heartbreaking way. Now, Ozeki has previously been shortlisted for the Man uh, Booker Prize, and she has also won the Independent Booksellers Award. That's great. That's a really smashing idea, isn't it, that things talk to you mm. and then of course when you've got a hoarding problem you can just imagine the cacophony oh good that grief you yes. Hear. yes uh but yeah. it's brilliant that sounds really interesting uh, my next book is the bread the devil need by lisa allen agostini now This, unfortunately, is uh, about the reality of domestic violence and it becomes too real for our protagonist, Alethea, and the reader as Alan Agostini brings her majestic voice to bear in this powerful tale from a Trinidadian boutique. Alethea Lopez is about to turn 40, fashionable, feisty, fiercely independent, and she manages a downtown boutique. But behind closed doors, she's covering up bruises from her abusive partner and seeking solace in an affair with her boss. It's only a witnessed violent act that forces her to confront her truths. So this is a brilliant work of fiction with lots of truths to convey that readers them themselves will need to confront. So Lisa Allen Agostini is a writer, an editor and a stand-up comedian from Trinidad and Tobago. So this is actually a really funny and witty and really well-written book. So it might be on a serious subject, but she tells it with a bit of verve. So I think that's well worth reading. 
I, yeah, that sounds. It does sound very interesting, and and in the tropical island of Trinidad. Absolutely. Uh, now, the the uh, one that I've got for you um, next up is "Island of Missing Trees" by Alif Shafak. Um, now, Alif Shafak seems to get better and better with every new book she writes, which is absolutely fantastic, and her flock of fans grow wider with every book um, that she publishes. Now, this one is a fierce love story played out along the divided lines of Cyprus in the early 70s, where only the secret magic of the island's past can bring any balance to prejudices that are keeping young love and future happiness apart. As you'd expect from um, Shafak, um, she carefully manipulates her words to allow the reader and hopefully the protagonist to fall in love with their story. Uh, Now, Alif Shafak has previously been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. um, And to get you a little taster, we have a little extract for you to listen to. Absolutely. Ada clenched her eyes shut, feeling the burn of the comment, a raw scorch mark on her flesh. But nothing they did or said could be worse than the hatred for herself just then. What was wrong with her? Why could she not answer a simple question like everyone else? As a child, she'd loved turning in circles on the Turkish carpet to make herself dizzy and drop to the floor, from where she could watch the world spin round and round. She could still remember the hand-woven patterns of the carpet, dissolving in a thousand sparks, the colours blending into each other, scarlet into green, saffron into white. What she experienced right now was a different kind of dizziness. She had the sense of entering a trap, a door locking behind her, the click of a latch falling into place. She felt paralysed. So many times in the past she'd suspected that she carried within a sadness that was not quite her own. In science class, they'd learned that everyone inherited one chromosome from their mother and one from their father. Long threads of DNA with thousands of genes that built billions of neurons and trillions of connections between them. All that genetic information passed from parents to offspring, survival, growth, reproduction, the colour of your hair, the shape of your nose, whether you had freckles or sneezed in sunlight, everything was in there. But none of that answered the one question burning in her mind. Was it also possible to inherit something as intangible and immeasurable as sorrow? You may sit down, repeated Mrs Walcott. Still, she did not move. Ada, did you hear what I said? Remaining upright, she tried to choke back the fear that filled her throat, clogged her nostrils. It reminded her of the taste of the sea under a harsh beating sun. She touched it with the tip of her tongue. It wasn't the salty brine after all. It was warm blood. She'd been biting the inside of her cheek. Her eyes slid towards the window, beyond which the storm was approaching. She noticed in the slate grey sky, amidst banks of clouds, a sliver of crimson bleeding into the horizon, like an old wound that had never quite healed. Please sit down, came the teacher's voice. And once again, she did not comply. Later, much later, when the worst had already happened and she was alone in her bed at night, unable to fall asleep, listening to her father, also sleepless, pacing the house. Ada Kazanatsky would revisit this moment, this fissure in time, when she could have done as she was told and returned to her seat, remaining more or less invisible to everyone in the classroom. 
Unnoticed, but also undisturbed, she could have kept things the way they had been. If only she could have stopped herself from doing what she did next. I've got to say, Alif Shafak is a fantastic uh, author, as well as being mm. a fantastic um, person in terms of her political thoughts and her um, do look her up on uh, TED Talks and on her talks on uh, on the web's well worth it. All right, good. Uh, right, so the final one is The Sentence by Louise Erdrich. Now, this is a ghost story set in a bookshop. So this is one that we'll all enjoy. Yes. And what wouldn't set the pulses racing? Flora... The devoted bookshop lover dies on All Souls Day and she refuses to leave the bookshelves in peace. So that leaves bookseller Tuki to unravel the mystery of the haunting, whilst also wrestling with the grief and unsettling atmosphere of the surrounding city. So what emerges from this tale is a rich, deep and moving manifestation of the Native American experience in modern America with Erdrich's unique humour to propel this book beyond anything else you'll read this year. So Louise Erdrich is a popular American um, author. She's Pulitzer Prize winner and National Book Award winning author. And she's created a wickedly funny ghost story, a tale of passion, of a complex marriage and a woman's relentless errors. Mm, that really does sound interesting. Now, you are, of course, listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, and it's never been easier for we're now broadcasting on DAB Radio. Now, every week there is a host of great programmes you can listen to, uh, both music and talk shows. Now, Turning Pages, your favourite book programme, is on every Wednesday, as you know, because you're listening between 11 and 12, and repeated on Saturday afternoons between 2 and 3 p.m. And if you want to catch up on any past programmes you've missed, then you can go into the Listen Again facility um, directly from our website, which is www.river.radio, and then you go on to Turning Pages. And it's also, Turning Pages is also available as a podcast. So all you've got to do is search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast. Now, coming up, we'll be recommending events at the Cookham Festival, which is just around the corner. But first, we'll be exploring the world of geography in books. I think geography seems to be an overlooked topic somewhat. Um, I think so. Yeah, it's given, uh, is it given the same prominence in schools with history? At least it did when I was there. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, certainly. I mean, well, certainly there's a junior. I think then when you went up to duo levels, it was something you would choose to do, I think. Oh. But beforehand, in your in your um, first and second year, it was it was along with history and others. And, and you did do it and you did your, your contours and you did all your, you know, you know you, 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 all your little maps and things. Yes, we were in, uh, we were in the Lake District um, earlier on. Um, this week and we passed uh, drumlins you know the the basket of egg topography oh, right. <laughs> i don't know why this sort of this phrase sort of springs into my mind but every time you see somewhere in the late district that's got drumlins you've got to say that phrase <laughs> anyway geography in my mind anyway dropped out of my consciousness to be fair i know my 
my friend Steve, who listened to this program. Good morning, Steve. He strongly disagrees with me here, as it's a topic that constantly fascinates him. So I suppose it's fair to say that geography dropped out of my consciousness rather than everybody else's. But I do see where Steve's fascination comes from. And when we were reviewing this section, I didn't realise how many geography books I read and enjoy, because they're sort of hidden as sort of history books or political books. Uh, but geography sort of under underlining it all. Um, so the first author I want to recommend is Tim Marshall. Now, his first book, Prisoners of Geography, was a runaway bestseller, sold over a million copies. And his latest book, The Power of Geography, has been solidly in the bestseller list uh, for what seems like months and months. And I've got to admit, I have kept meaning to talk about it. Um, because Tim Marshall, um, not only are his books really interesting, he's a great speaker. So if you get the chance, if you're ever doing any bookshop events, do try and go and listen to him. So he's the former Sky News foreign affairs editor. And in Prisoners of Geography, he explores the primary geopolitical concerns of 10 key global regions through the lens of geography. Now, its subtitle is 10 Maps That Tell You Everything You Need to Know About uh, Global Politics. And that basically explains the book. And of course, with the Russian-Ukrainian war happening, it's a really good reason to read this book. So, for example, you do have to question what is driving Russia's foreign policy. But also, why does Putin's actions sort of mirror those that have been made again and again? Um, from Russia. And Prisoners of Geography, which was published well, 20, it was published in 2016, which I don't think was too long ago. But now I think it's a totally different world. And mm. um, Marshall is <coughs> analysing the geographic weaknesses and historical invasions of Russia's territories and explores how they've ultimately shaped the decisions of its leaders, past and present. And when you look at that and look at the situation today, you just think that Tim Marshall was a mind reader. You can just see mm. how obvious what he's saying is comes into play. So why is Putin obsessed with Crimea? Well, the importance is that Russia's critical lack of a warm water port. Um, and so it's not lingering Soviet pride or the personality of President Putin. It's very simply they need a warm water port and the ukrainian land that putin is now looking to own is important to the russians because they fear a threat coming from the flat northern european plain and it only there whereas if there were only some great big mountains to keep russians apart from the world it would be absolutely fine we only need to i suppose to look at china and india where tim marshall explains that these two great powers who have had a long and definitely difficult border between them but invasion from either side has been stopped because of that range of mountains mm. which remains a formidable um, barrier so basically leaders are constrained by geography and their choices are limited by the mountains the rivers the seas and the concrete and i think to follow world events or to understand world events we need to understand the people, the ideas and the movements. But if we don't know the geography, we just don't get the full picture. And this book really explains that so vividly. Mm, it's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So one of the yeah. things it was talking about is Tibet. And it was saying the reason why China is so interested in Tibet is that 
all of its water source start in the Tibetan mountains. So, of course, right. what China's looking to do is control their water source because they fear it might be taken away from them. Right. Um, so, really fascinating. Yeah. Well, I think um, I'd like to think I've got a, a fascinating book for our, for our listeners. It's a little bit different. And by way of introduction, um, we've got a little piece to get us going. OK. New Caledonia, 1698 to 1700. Population, 1,200, but not for long. Capital, New Caledonia. Currency, Combs. Cause of death, bad planning, mosquitoes, Sassanachs. Today, part of Panama. It's comforting to feel smug about the past. We laugh at our disasters and our haircuts and our computers the size of a bus. Look at those olden days idiots. How could they be so incredibly lame? Not like me, living in the glorious now, knowing all the things I know. This housing market is never going to crash. With the benefit of hindsight, Scotland's attempt to establish New Caledonia seems so obviously doomed it's risible. But the scheme wasn't quite the straight-up bit of stupidity it's usually portrayed as. As usual, the English were definitely partly to blame. Scotland's economy was in a bad way, and one of the reasons was that England and the ever-rapacious East India Company refused to allow it any bite of the international trading pie. The Company of Scotland was an attempt to fight back. It planned to raise funds in order to kick-start a new Scottish empire. That in itself wasn't a bad idea, but the next issue was where, and this is the point things started to unravel. Bad luck would have it that Lionel Wafer, a Welsh explorer, had returned from what is now Panama some years previously and made it sound amazing. Green jungle, clear streams, delicious wild hogs, giant rabbits, fat bees, grassy meadows, prickly pears and pineapples as big as your head. For people stuck in rainy, impoverished Edinburgh, it sounded like a literal paradise. The company decided it had found the perfect place to set up its trading colony and the Darien scheme was born. Nobody stopped to ask why, if this Darien place was as great as all that, the Spanish hadn't already taken it over the way they had the rest of the Americas. The plan instantly hit a snag when England banned the Company of Scotland from seeking investors in either London or the Netherlands. So it had to turn to its countrymen, thousands of small investors who enthusiastically backed the project to the tune of £400,000, which was a staggering amount, equivalent to an entire fifth the country's economy. Boats were purchased and colonists were recruited, and it seemed for a moment that the English wouldn't have it all their own way for once. The stuff they packed appears absurd now, but would have struck your average 17th century Scot as essential. Combs to exchange with the indigenous tribes, loads of Bibles, bonnets galore and a massive amount of whiskey. In 1698, five ships set out carrying a total of 1,200 people. The journey was difficult and things got worse when they arrived. The locals weren't that interested in the combs. The settlers couldn't locate a source of fresh water. The swampy location they'd chosen wasn't much like Wafer's description, and several billion mosquitoes meant malaria was rife. The death rate ran at about 10 a day. The only upside was it was 300 years too early for Bear Grylls to show up. The sailors, refusing to leave their boats, didn't trust the colonists and vice versa. The local Kuna people proved friendly enough. Like the Scots, they hated the Spanish, but there was a limit as to what they could do to help. Everybody got very drunk, though given the prevalence of waterborne diseases, sticking to booze wasn't the dumbest strategy in the world. 
After only a year, with the population down to 300, the colonists abandoned New Edinburgh and sailed for New York. Unfortunately, news was slow in 1699, and an initial flurry of positive letters sent out as a PR campaign, suspiciously in retrospect, featuring the recurring phrase, one of the fruitfullest spots of ground on the face of the earth, had already led to a second batch of settlers striking out for the new country. Upon arrival, one of their boats caught fire. The colony was besieged by the Spanish. The Scots abandoned it once again in 1700. Back home, the company collapsed in ignominy. As a result, New Caledonia wasn't the only nation to officially come unstuck. Scotland would, before the decade was out, find itself having to sign the Act of Union, at least in part because the Darien scheme had left it bankrupt. Today, you can drive 19,000 miles along the Pan-American Highway all the way from Alaska to the tip of Argentina, except for the Darien Gap. Still too much of a swampy challenge, even for the smart, nowadays versions of us. Now, New Caledonia is one of the countries to feature in Gideon Defoe's interesting and amusing book, uh, An Atlas of Extinct Countries, the remarkable and occasionally ridiculous stories of 48 nations that fell off the map. The 48 uh, nations are divided into four sections in the book, the first being um, chances and crackpots, which include among the 12 in this uh, section, the Kingdom of Sarawak, which came about when a Victorian adventurer named James Brooke sailed from England to Borneo, where he managed to quell uh, the quarrelling indigenous Dayaks and restore some order. And as a result, the grateful Sultan of Brunei awarded Brooke a chunk of territory in the mistaken idea that Brooke somehow represented the British Empire, which, of course, he did not. That was in 1841, and for the next 105 years, the Kingdom of Sarawak was ruled by the White Rajas, which was the Brooks family, until the last, Vinerbrook, was obliged to sell his kingdom to the British government in 1946. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is a great one. And the second section of the book covers mistakes and micronations, which is the category that the uh, doomed New Caledonia finds itself in, along with the short-lived Principality of Elba, which was then, uh, then the great powers of Europe decided to give to the recently vanquished Napoleon Bonaparte in 1814, thinking that would um, get him out of the way, occupy his time, and keep him out of trouble. Well, as we know, um, <laughs> how wrong they were. But to his credit, Napoleon uh, made a reasonable uh, fist of improving the somewhat dusty island, whose main produce were cabbages. Now, he went about and built schools, anti-pirate fortifications, and laid out proper streets. And on the agricultural front, to augment the cabbages, he started a drive to grow more potatoes and, oddly, radishes. Now, in a sign that he was probably not the completely reformed character his European victors had hoped uh, for, he promptly annexed the nearby island of Pianosa (laughs) so that that he could actually grow wheat. Now, not content with gardening and putting up uh, lampposts, Napoleon um, decided um, he was uh, going to go back to France. So he had a boat painted um, in English colours, had a final dinner with his mum and sister and set sail for France for his second adventure. And thus came the end of the Principality of Elba in 1815, exactly one year after its creation. What a fabulous story that is. It is, isn't it? And and this book is full of some amazing things. Really lovely. Great. And then the third third section covers um, uh, lies and lost kingdoms, includes wonderfully named uh, countries such as the Most Serene Republic, 
Republic of Venice and the Golden Kingdom of Scylla, uh, and also to the rather oddly named the Great Republic of Rough and Ready, <clears throat> uh, which lasted, it was, a, it was a republic, it lasted for three short months from the 7th of April to the 4th of July in California in 1850. Its, its population stood at 3,000 souls and its end came about because of alcohol. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the fourth and final section um, deals with puppets and political foot, foot, footballs, and this and and uh, which um, counts among its um, number nations those that are not so obscure, such as the Republic of Formosa, Manchu Kuo, um, more recently, well, um, in uh, up until the eighties, the German Democratic Republic. Yugoslavia, and more presently, and in the past eight years, the Republic of Crimea, which goes back to the book you mentioned before. Um, Now, in the case of the short-lived Republic of Formosa, um, this lasted six months in 1896, and it came about because Imperial China lost the war with Japan over Korea, resulting in the humiliating treaty of Shimonoseki, whereby China was forced to cede the island of Formosa to Japan. Now, understandably, the Formosans felt badly about this, that they'd been sold out by the motherland, and the local elites, um, quite grumpy about it, rebelled, causing the reluctant Governor Tang to declare independence. Now, the Japanese didn't take uh, uh, take much uh, of that, and when they arrived to take their possession, Tang fled. Uh, another president of the Republic was chosen, but soon proved to be as useless as the first, and he too fled pretty smartly after that. And thus, the Republic of Formosa was no more. Now, the irony of this is that. Then the reason for declaring independence was for Formosa to be reunited with the motherland, whereas today, of course, um, it's the opposite is the case. And if you're wondering um, what that means, Formosa is now known as Taiwan. And as for the name Formosa, well, the island was named by a sailor on a passing Portuguese trading vessel who was so impressed by the landscape that he called it Ilha Formosa, which in Portuguese is Beautiful Island. That's a lovely name, actually. Isn't it just? Yeah. Uh, and, um, and now, if, you, if you'd like to know more about these places, Heather, um, such as the Republic of Texas, um, there was a Republic of Texas, the Free State of Bottleneck, um, the Quilombo of Palmares, or even even the islands of refreshment, <laughs> then pop to your local bookshop and buy yourself a copy of An Atlas of Extinct Countries, which is available in paperback and it's published by Fourth Estate. Now, if uh, these were not strange enough for you, let me tell you um, uh, all about the odd case of the Ottawa Civic Hospital Maternity Ward. Right. Ottawa Civic Hospital Maternity Ward, 19th of January, 1943. Population 2 sort of. Cause of death, a birth. Today, back to being a bit of Canada. In the Ealing comedy Passport to Pimlico, an unexploded bomb belatedly goes off in London, unearthing a document that reveals the streets above to be a long-lost part of the House of Burgundy. Suddenly free from the United Kingdom's legal jurisdiction and not subject to post-war rationing, a black market of illicit goods quickly springs up and things escalate from there. It seems like a fictional version of Cospea or maybe neutral Morris Nett, but in fact the film's screenwriter was inspired by an even more obscure bit of international territorial wrangling, a wartime hospital ward. 
It is a stretch to call a maternity unit an extinct country, fair point, but as we've seen, definitions of nationhood are such a legal mess, maybe we can just let this one slide. In 1940, Germany invaded the Netherlands and the Dutch royal family went into exile. Princess Juliana fled to suburban safety in the Canadian capital, Ottawa. While living there, she got pregnant with her third child. This created a gigantic problem. The Dutch constitution was airtight on the issue. Nobody could take their place in the line of succession if they were born on the soil of another country. Contrary to popular belief, embassies, while having diplomatic immunity, are still territorially considered part of their host nation. So if you're thinking about getting your kids citizenship of a less terrible country than your own by having a baby in the Swedish ambassador's waiting room, forget it. Princess Juliana faced a dilemma, because obviously going back to the Nazi-controlled Netherlands wasn't an appealing option. So the Canadian government and a number of high-powered lawyers came to her rescue. They passed a law that would create an extraterritorial zone for the baby to be born in. A simple option might have been to earmark a particular place, but presumably that would have left open the possibility of the princess being out for a stroll, suddenly going into labour, and the baby accidentally being born on Canadian soil after all. The wording of the proclamation solved this issue by providing an extraterritorial character to any place in which the heir presumptive to the throne of the Netherlands may be confined and in which an heir to such throne may be born. This amounted to a roaming bubble around the baby that became, in legal terms, a strange non-Canadian zone. It wasn't Dutch territory either, officially, though they did hang a big flag in the maternity ward in which itself happened to overlook Holland Avenue. The bubble was, in effect, a non-territory, a micro-sized repeat of the Tangier experiment in some ways, though with less in the way of bad poetry and hipster drug addicts. At no point during the lengthy back and forth that led up to the proclamation did anyone turn round and say, I don't know, are our entire concepts of nationhood and citizenship and the rules of royal succession, are they maybe a bit ludicrous? Princess Marguerite of the Netherlands was successfully delivered on 19th of January 1943. If the pregnant Juliana had decided to murder someone at the exact moment of giving birth, it would have been an exciting legal grey area but perhaps distracted, she didn't take this opportunity. As a thank you to Canada, she later sent them 100,000 tulip bulbs. And as a postscript, if she'd given this gift 300 years earlier, at the height of tulip mania, those 100,000 bulbs would have been worth 800,000 fat swine, 1,200,000 fat sheep, 400,000 tonnes of beer, 100 million pounds of cheese and 200,000 tonnes of butter. Fantastic. <laughs> Which I thought it was really good. because I, um, Just an extraordinary little, um, I suppose, diplomatic thing there, but I thought that was rather a good idea that they came up with. Yes. <laughs> but I just amazing, that, just thinking that the value of tulips um, all those years ago, what, you know, oh, the, yes. the tulip mania, absolutely incredible. No, you that's know, a great um, book. It is. And it, I mean, it really is lovely. And and what, I, what I, I should mention, because the way the chapters are organised, each each country is a, a chapter. So um, it, it's about um, um, 
two, mostly three pages. So it's a really good dipping book. So oh, you can just right. pick up one. You don't have to read it in, in any particular order. But, but, yes. but actually what you do do, once you start on the first country, you do just carry on. I mean, because it, it's just fun. I mean, yeah. it really is. Sounds and um, uh, and the author um, uh, is, 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 is really very witty and yeah. really good. Yeah, I've got to say that I think that uh, there were so many books that we could talk about in this, oh, in this yes. area. We're going to have to come back to it because I certainly have got loads that I want to um, rejoice in. Yes, indeed, I know. And, uh, well, may- maybe we should do a three-hour show. Oh, <laughs> no! <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, um, as, as we've mentioned before, um, River Radio has teamed up with the Cook and Festival this year. Um, so uh, we, we suggest you take a look at the website and look at all the events that are on offer, which there are a, an amazing number. Um, and there's something, surely, that's going to, uh, uh, to appeal. And you can book your tickets um, on the website as well which is www.cookhamfestival.co.uk but you must not dally because the tickets are running out for a lot of the events so yes, you really yes you really need to jump on now there's, there's a, a massive amount i mean a, a fantastic um, range of, of of events to uh, to amuse the family so lure you uh, and um and and fascinate and for the f- entire family um children to parents to aunts and uncles and the grandparents um there's going to be talks there's going to be the walks there's drama and there's comedy, and it's all going to sit side by side in the famous um, sculpture garden at the Omni Club. Now, the workshops um, uh, include, if you want to develop your your skills of writing, so there's going to be a writer's a workshop. Also, there's going to be a, a drawing workshop, which is uh, which will help you with your skills or get you um, interested in, in um, taking up drawing. Uh, and then also um, dance classes as well. And uh, apparently, which I think this sounds like a great deal of fun, there's going to be a communal sing-along to the tune of Cole Porter's musical, Anything Goes. So absolutely fantastic. Get your flapper uh, dresses on, boys and girls. And away you go. You'll have a great time. And of course, there is Tralla, the fabulous spoken word section, which is all about books, all about plays. It's going to include broadcasting and also it's going to include poetry. Um, and we've, of course, been featuring all of this quite recently. But really, it's something well worth going. And the important thing is, it's starting on the 6th of May. Yes. I'm told mm-hmm. that the weather is going to be really good from that <gasps> weekend onwards. Touch it's, wood. Yes, and it's going to be temperatures maybe maybe not into the scorching, but getting up to 20, uh, 20 degrees. So that'll be really nice. So if you're out and about um, at the festivals in, in, during the day, it's going to be lovely weather. So get yes. onto the website, select what you want, and please, please do quite soon because the tickets are going out like hot cakes. And I thought what we'd just do is we'd just have a look at a few of our favourite items that are on at the show. Mm-hmm. That would be a good idea. Yes, yes. So what what have you spotted that uh, you're particularly keen? Well, the, the, the one I'm, the, because of the distance, I'm, I'm, I, the one I'm particularly keen on, which um, uh, I, I, I'm going to mention, but I'm, sadly I won't be able to make it, is actually um, the um, Michael Parkinson um, 
uh, session. Parky. So Mike Parky. So Michael is actually going to be recounting his life um, and uh, the, the years he spent on um, his show, interviewing these fantastic um, actors, actresses, showmen, show policemen. And the event could take place on Friday. Um, on the 6th of May uh, and unfortunately the reason I can't make it is my birthday that day and I have something um, already arranged uh, but that's going to be the 8pm and that's really going to be very interesting because um, because his his son is going to do the interviewing and I think that's really going to be a very interesting um, uh, episode because when, you know if you just think back to to some of the shows um, that uh, Parky had got involved, yes. it was fun, was fantastic. And I, I'm just going to say, and I, I hope he might mention this, but one of my favourite was one one of his shows where it was entirely Barry Humphreys, and he had oh, yes. he had um, so Les Patterson, the Australian cultural attaché to Gordon James, on first slobbering and drooling, and. They had Barry Humphreys. I don't know how they did this. They had Barry Humphreys as himself dressed, you know, Mufti, yeah. in the audience, cringing. And then the second guest was Dame Edna Everidge. It was brilliant. a fantastic show. It was really brilliant. So that, that's one that is a highlight for well, me. Well, I know they're going to have clips shown at the... Uh, oh, great. So he's going to show a clip and then obviously talk about it. So I think that'll be great fun. Yeah. Yes, that would be really good. And I think probably a, a, another one, I think you, maybe, because um, I, I can't really draw anything, but it'd be quite fun to do uh, one of the drawing uh, the drawing workshops, ah, I think. Ah, right. Learn mm. a bit of skills, yes. Yes. So you were mentioning that the weather is going to be fantastic. Yes. And I've got to say that the Cook and Festival Sculpture Garden is always is always really great to, to walk around, mm. but particularly when the weather is nice. So it's going to yeah. be at the Odney Club, which, of course, is the John Lewis Partnership, their exclusive country club. Ah, Normally right, yes. private, yes. you're not allowed in, mm-hmm. but they have given us a dispensation to put the sculptures, so the sculptures are sort of positioned all over the uh, the grounds. So you've got to walk around the grounds. So you look at it and the Thames runs alongside. It's really, it's really lovely to do. And of course, you can have a cup of tea and a piece of cake at the cafe lovely. as well in mm-hmm. the sunshine. And on Saturday afternoons between two and four at the Sculpture Garden, there's going to be some poetry reading as well. So Ooh, the idea right. is you just go along and you ask for your favourite programme to be read, sorry, your favourite poem to be read to you or actually if you feel like orating yourself you can actually choose um a a poem because there'll be poetry books around that you can pick up and flick through and then choose and then you can recite it to your friends if you fancy doing that Um, oh that's that's good because in fact instead of um a speaker's corner you can have a poet's corner that's exactly what it is yes super yeah well, and, and another thing, which is, of course, is a, a part of my, my sort of heritage, is um, on, the, um, uh, on the 14th of May is International Dylan Thomas ah, Day. Ah, yes. And Under Milk Wood, which, of course, is Dylan Thomas is probably one of his most famous um, uh, works, uh, will be taking place on the International Dylan, Dylan Thomas Day. So tickets um, are available, but only for the evening performance so you need to so presumably i imagine by that they're saying all of the daytime ones have, have all gone <laughs> sold out, yeah. um so uh if you're if you're really wanting to see under milk wood then 
pop onto the website pronto. Not now, because we've still got a few minutes of our show. Yeah. But when it's finished, then go onto the website and book your Under Milkwood tickets. Great. So I've just got one last one and then we've, yep. we've got to go on, which is uh, on Monday the 9th, 730 Um Basically, what did the Romans ever do for us? I'll be discovering how the Romans impacted practically every area of Britain. Um, listening to the talk by Mike Bryan, uh, and he's written a book and he's been on um, Turning Pages before, which is Roman Britain and where to find it. So I think that's that's a great one. I urge you to come along. Yeah, and you can see him live. You can, in, you can indeed. So the Cooking Festival is on between the 6th to the 22nd of May and full details can be found at cookandfestival.com co.uk so books we're recommending today are conversations with friends by sally rooney published by faber and faber lyrics by brian ferry published by chatter and windus great circle by maggie shipstead published by penguin uh, meg mason's sorrow and bliss published by weidenfeld and nicholson R- ruth ozeki the book of form and emptiness published by canongate books uh, the Bread of the Devil Need by Lisa Allen Agostini, published by Myriad Editions. The Island of Missing Trees by Elif Shafak, published by Penguin. The Sentence by Louise Edrich, published by Corsair. Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall, published by Elliot and Thompson. Uh, and an Atlas of Extinct count, uh, Countries by Gideon Defoe, published by Fourth Estate. You're listening to Turning Pages on River Radio. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to you joining us next week. Bye bye. Bye bye. Windsor, Windsor, Ascot, Ascot Maidenhead, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Bracknell Wokingham, Wokingham, Henley, Henley Reading. Reading. Okay. Ta-da! The Voice River Radio.